This is gonna hurt. It's time, it's time for the Suffering, for the suffering Podcast. podcast. Thank you for listening to the first part of The Suffering of Cop Doc with Dr. Eugene Stefanelli. Please stick around and hear the outrageous conclusion as we dive deep into our personal relationships with the man himself, Dr. Eugene Stefanelli. I'm Kevin Donaldson here with Mike Felice, and welcome to The Suffering Podcast. If you're a fan of overcoming adversity and overcoming suffering, then we're for you, because that's what we do here, and that's the stories that we highlight. So do me a favor, hit that like button, subscribe to the channel, please comment, ring the bell so you can get notified of all of our new content, and now you can join. Follow us on all social media so you can find out what we're up to. And on this episode of The Suffering Podcast, we welcome back Dr. Eugene Stefanelli to go to part two of the suffering of cop doc doc. There's too much information with you being as important to the show as you are for us to do in one episode, because in the second part of this, I want to get into the meat and potatoes (laughs) of why these two knuckleheads are sitting across from a, from a highly esteemed doctor. And Kev, I have to tell you, he hasn't aged much in a week. <laughs> he looks just as he did, just as good as he did last week. Well, you know, listen, tour, touring with Fleetwood Mac for the last 40 years. Uh, and I know uh, before Fleetwood Mac, you were a stand-in for Frank Zappa. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? That's, uh, that was actually people used to say. You look like them. <laughs> I've seen the pictures. Before we go any further, let's give a big shout out to our marquee sponsor. That's Toyota of Hackensack. We don't trust anybody as police, but we do trust them. So go to toyotahackensack.com. Let them find you a car. Same as last week, Doc. We got another social media question. And this is, it wouldn't give their name. It's user 4527. Why are cops so hard-headed? Obviously, I pulled this one just for you. You got the most experience working with cops. What do you think? First of all, a cop's personality profile is probably wouldn't be healthy for somebody who's not a cop. <laughs> um, you know, they, they don't trust. They don't trust. Um, they're control freaks. Um, little above the law and aggressive. So without that, you can't function in your job, really. So uh, well, That makes perfect sense. Yeah. I was going to say, those traits wouldn't work in any other profession. No. They no. don't work in law enforcement that much mm-hmm. anymore, but... And and it's you know it's that little bit above the law that kind of gives them that uh, little bit more power. I have seen certain cops uh, with a with a god complex. Mm-hmm. You know, I am I am the law, Judge Dread type of thing. Right. And that those are the ones who, in my opinion, should have never become cops because most of the time in high school, those were the ones that got shoved in lockers. You know, Mike, what do you think? Like you said, I mean, I, I think it's a command presence thing. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to show that you're, you know, you're, you're the power, you're the power, you're the authority. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you know? are the authority. So let's I mean but, that's part of it. But sometimes cops let that power get to their head, you know, and that's when most cops get in trouble. You know, like you said, they think they're above the law. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it really comes down to a command, command presence thing. And plus, we're so jaded by so many things that we see. Well, yeah. I think t- today it's even more difficult <clears throat> uh, in terms of the uh, Klopp's mindset because of all the negativity that's out there. There's never anything positive. No. They don't tell you about all the good things, the neighbors they deliver, the lives they save. Um, they never, you know, they don't throw a lot of that out. Uh, and news media has been a big enemy of ours. I, I say it at all the time. You know, I've done a lot of things in my career, you know, running into burning buildings, you know, CPR mm-hmm. saves, all that stuff. 
not one thing made the paper. Mm-hmm. That proctology exam you gave on that one guy, that made the paper. <laughs> With the broomstick. With the home. Oh, my God. No, it was a plunger, Doc. Oh, I'm sorry. It was a plunger. Um, I'm going to, for my answer, I'm going to dissect what you just said. Okay. Okay, so we don't trust anybody. That's because we get lied to as police officers every single day. Something as innocuous as saying, were you, you know, I saw you driving down the street. You weren't wearing your seatbelt. Yes, I was. Or I just pulled out of the place. Meanwhile, the place that they pulled out of was 10 miles away. So we get lied to every day. We're control freaks because when we show up at a scene, we have to control everything because if we lose control, everything, it's a dangerous situation. You know, aggressive. Well, we see so much stuff over time that we try to anticipate the danger before the danger happens. So we have to control a situation. And sometimes that has to we have to see them and we have to raise them one. So that usually ups the aggression. Well, your job, your job is is to control what society can't control. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, as far as um, being hard, you know, hard nosed about things, that just goes along with uh, what you have to do. I mean, you can't show weakness, right? You know, we we also have to control people who can't control their own lives, right? Yeah. You don't call a cop just to come over and have coffee. No. You come o- you call a cop because something's wrong in your life that you can't handle. Now we have to come in and handle it, right? And well, now we're here and we have to <clears throat> automatically know what to do. And there's a lot of times that cops just don't know what to do. I say to people all the time, I didn't invite myself over here. You called me. <laughs> so that's my answer. And, but you, and, you did say something important. We don't trust people, but we do trust Toyota Hackensack. This, this is 100% <laughs> true. We trust Toyota Hackensack. We trust Popple. We trust BetterHelp. But that's part of your job because you, 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 have, you have to have a little bit of trust. And um, how about, you know... You, you have to be you you you, you oh. suspect sometimes that there are things and I, that's part of that's part of that trust issue I believe. Well, we don't even trust each other. Yeah. We we don't because no, that I, blue that thin blue line is the biggest bunch of bullshit myth I've ever met in my life. Because police all the time on this epi- on this show we say police are crab in a crabs in a barrel yeah. one crab tries to climb out another one tries to pull you back down because of whatever their ego is there is very few there's some there's some but there are very few police officers who are totally giving they want to elevate those around them because and that's the right way to do it because if you elevate those around you then you look better by default mm-hmm. you know See, you'd know who this is because you remember the guests off the top of your head <clears throat> we had one guest in whose father was a cop. The kid wanted to become a cop. And the father said, you're going to see some of the worst yep. human beings that you ever going to see in your life. Then you're going to leave the locker room and go out on the street. I think that's a generalization. <laughs> that's that's uh, That was Matt Stanislao. Yeah. His father was a cop and <clears throat> he, Matt, Matt was gay and his father did not approve of him being gay. Right. Um, didn't and approve of him being a cop either. Didn't approve of him being a cop. But that that <clears throat> kind of, there's a lot of truth to that. And you know the department I worked in. So there was no trust in that department <laughs> at all. No. Doc is very well versed in my department. <laughs> uh, listen, user 4527, thank you for sending that question in. Keep sending in your questions and we're going to try to get them on the air. So, Doc, the reason we brought you back this week was there's a whole thing that we we touch on from time to time within this show. But in in essence, Mike and I going to you, we say this often, that you are the reason that him and I are sitting here today. 
because you, you know this specifically with me, and I haven't been in session with Mike, although we should go to couples counseling. Um, <laughs> I was going to mention work. that, but, but you know, Doc so used to work with couples. <laughs> yeah, we we might need to we might need a couples counseling session. <laughs> but I know for me specifically, and I can only speak for me. Had I not seen you when I saw you, and I found you. To, I, kn- I, I knew you. I think I pulled you over a couple times. Yeah, you did. Yeah. But, the, but the, the initially, my meeting with you was when that uh, clerk got killed uh, at the... Um, quick check. At the quick check. At the quick check, that, yeah. yeah. that was the first of... Uh, July 16th, 2004. Wow. Yep. His name was Eduardo. So what the story behind that was is some people wanted to rob quick check. They were watching it. They knew they closed up at 11. As soon as they locked the door, they shot through the door. Went in, the guy handed him the cash, and Eduardo was a sweet guy. We used to see him when we went in there and get, get coffee. As soon as he turned around because they raised the gun, he was running away, they shot him in the back. When I got there, he was still alive. I found the bullet. It was like the magic bullet from the Kennedy assassination laying right next to him. And I, I this is how well I remember that night, almost 20 years ago. I had just quit smoking, and I used to smoke Newports. I'm behind the counter working on him. And his face is white as this this table. And I look up, and at my eye level is a carton of Newports. It was a trying time for me. I bet. Um, and then they carted him off. We found out he passed on the way to the hospital. Um, but I remember him just saying, "You know, don't let me die." Yeah. So that that was a, that was hard. That was that was a hard one. That's a because one. prior to that, in my town, the only homicide prior to that was a mob hit. That was written about in the in the book Drop a Dime. And is, that where, is that where it came from, Roseland? Yeah, Roseland. So and they they staged at the the quick at the <clears throat> quick check or uh, the shop right in West West Caldwell. Mm-hmm. Came down Passaic Avenue, and the house was on the corner of Pitcairn and Morgantine. It's still there. The house is built specifically. For, he was a capo. Uh, the house was specifically built for him with higher windows, thicker walls, and they him and his bodyguard were walking down the driveway. And were killed right at the base of the driveway. And I saw the, I, I actually pulled the file on that when I saw all the pictures. I saw the pictures of his autopsy and everything because I was interested. And then this thing happens. And the, the problem with that is administration didn't understand why we didn't know what to do at a crime scene like that. Because the, the one prior to that was 30 years prior. Right. So, you know, <laughs> but that that's, um, so when I, I came to you after my shooting in 2013, I think... I called cop to cop and cop. I just needed, I didn't know where else to turn. I saw 1-800 cop to cop in a magazine and I happened to get Cherie Castellano on the phone and she says, okay, well, I'm going to set you up with Dr. Eugene Stefanelli. And I said, oh, I I know who Dr. Stefanelli is. And I, I go in to see you and half thinking that, all right, I'm going to do my therapy thing. And like, I didn't know what the hell was going on. And I never... (laughs) We sit down for the first session. I don't even think I was listening. I hadn't slept in two days. Um, I wasn't drinking at the time. But the way you spoke to me gave me a little bit of hope. And I was hopeless when I first walked in there. I didn't know, like, I'm. Uh, this is, my life is unraveling right in for me. Uh, prior to going in to see you, I'm in, they do a critical incident debriefing five days later in the police department. And after that debriefing, they tell us the shotguns are going back in the car. So I, Who I did the debriefing was no. it cop to cop. It was cop to cop. It was Cherie Cherie Castellano. Um, 
after the debriefing, they tell us that the shotguns are going, our shotguns were pulled out of the cars, but, and they said they're going to go back in the cars now. I'm like, okay, that's good. Oh yeah. But they're only going to be in supervisors cars. Something in me snapped just like that without thinking about it. I started yelling at a Lieutenant. I'm a patrolman yelling at a Lieutenant. You motherfuckers better tell my wife that if I die because I don't have a shotgun and you do and you're sitting in in headquarters drinking fucking coffee, you guys better fucking tell my wife that I don't get the same protection as you. To the point, it got so bad that the guys around me picked me up and walked me down the stairs. Our squad room was on the second floor. Walked me down the stairs and walked me out the back. Yeah. Yeah. Then I knew something was really bad. Yeah. It was bad. So See, the way I got that, got the doctor step was a little bit different. Both of us went to, uh, a couple doctors who were no good. We Dr. Mention, C. We won't mention any names. Oh, that my, my buddy. Yeah. No, he's your buddy. Yeah. So I was, he's still around. You're the reason, you're the reason why I, my, my, my comp got dropped for a short time because <laughs> you sent me to rehab. So. I go to my chief and I say, yo, I'm, I'm talking to this doctor. He said, I'm, I said, I'm not getting anywhere. I said, you know, we, he, we don't see eye to eye. So he says, let me send you to a friend of mine up in Oakland. Oh. So I figure I'm going up to just Who go said to that? my chief. Oh, I thought you were saying me. No, 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 no. no, no. At you, the time, Oakland wasn't, <clears throat> Oakland wasn't very good. We so, still aren't. Yeah. yeah. So I go up there. I think I'm going to go up and have a you know therapy session. I sit down. They give me MMPI. Yeah. 500 question psych eval. Um, you took that before you became a cop. A Wonderlick test. Now, um, they gave me a 400 que- question fitness for duty. I am going out of my mind. This was two weeks after my shooting. I told I told the, the <clears throat> old man when he was still there, I told him, you can Wonderlick my balls if you think I'm taking that. So- that's not the thing to give somebody after. There was not, one, not, not two weeks after. There was one doctor who took <clears throat> pity on me because I had the same experience as him. They sent me for, for an eval. One doctor took pity on me, and he's, I think he's, he's doing some decent work. So, so finally, I- Where was he? Uh, I'll tell you afterwards. Okay. I'll tell you afterwards. Finally, I say to the doctor, that's it. I'm not taking any more tests. He goes, no, no, you're done. He goes, go sit out in the lobby. He said, uh, if you want, go out and get yourself a cup of coffee. He said, I'll, you know, I'll be back in about a half hour. I jumped up. I said, listen, if I leave this fucking office now, you'll never see me again. I came up here to talk to someone and you gave me all these tests. And I said, I'll throw you out that fucking window. <laughs> oh, calm down. Calm down. <clears throat> we, we went in. He went over all my, you know, my fitness for duty and all that. And we talked about it. And I said to him, I said, Doc, let me ask you a question. Did I pass the fitness for duty? He goes, oh, no, no. He goes, I'm going to refer you to someone else. Your name was on the list, and that's how I got down here. So but I also had a cousin that went to an, an incident, and he kept saying to me, did you go see Dr. Steph yet? Did you go see Dr. Steph yet? <laughs> so I was referred to you through Oakland. Oh. Which is which is odd, because yeah. <laughs> for, for a long time, PBA was not very friendly with Oakland. Uh, I really, I can't speak about that. <laughs> <laughs> I know there's current litigation. I can, cause I, I have no stake in that game. There's current litigation on it or there was anyway. I don't know whether it's still going on. So you, you're dealing with us and I know the breaking point for me and we tried everything. I would come see you every single week and I would actually look forward to, believe it or not, I started to look forward to it as seeing it as a hindrance. Then we get to the gun incident 
And this is how crazy this motherfucker is sitting across from me. You're <laughs> fucking crazy. I call it brilliant. That was fucking nuts. <laughs> All right. So the, the I've said it a couple of times on the show. Um, we're getting on in therapy and I guess you had to evaluate whether I was going back, whether I could go back. Mm -hmm. So doc, like, and, and how, how extreme the dis disability was. So doc likes his weapons. Okay. We all know anybody who knows doc stuff likes, he likes his weapons. And I, <laughs> I've actually made you a couple weapons, <laughs> um, which may not be the smartest thing in the world. You're patient with post-traumatic stress, <laughs> giving you weapons. Um, you hit, you bring out a 1945 Colt 45 Army issue Bakelite handles, black blued steel, gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. Now, mind you, I've been around guns since I've been a little kid. I'm I never had any fear of guns. It wasn't like when I became a cop's first time I had a gun in my hand. I've had plenty of guns in my hand, and I'm looking at this gun and I'm I'm trying like I'm trying to be a man and I'm trying not to show you how afraid I am of this thing. You put it in my hand. Hopefully you found you, you checked whether it was loaded or not. I'm hoping you put it in my hand. And I remember the weight of the gun, that gun, because I looked it up. That gun is two pounds, like 1.3 ounces, something like that. And you put it in my hand, that, that thing weighed about 50 pounds. And I'm looking at it and I'm trying to like keep a straight face. I'm like, oh, wow, that's a, that's a really nice, that's, that's a nice gun. It's a nice gun here. Here, that's good. I didn't want it. I didn't rack it. I didn't check if it was right. safe. Um, what was it about you doing that? Like, explain that process. I wanted to see how you were going to react to it, to see if you, uh, you, you had been involved in a shooting, which almost took your life. So I wanted to see the impact that it had and how powerful the PTSD was. Obviously, I failed. Yeah. Well, it wasn't pass or fail. It's that, I, you know, I realized that you still had some issues we had to deal with. Um, and then the rest which of Which we did. Yeah. The rest of the week was kind of hell for me. Mm -hmm. Did you ever have a breakthrough moment with Doc in private session? <clears throat> you know, I mean, I, I think every every session was a breakthrough. It wasn't like an aha moment. You know, it was just every time I went to Doc, you realize more and you realize more and you start feeling better and start feeling <clears throat> a little more, I don't want to say right, because I don't think right is the, the proper word. But it was just, it was very comfortable talking to him. There was you know, times I used to get pissed off, <clears throat> like pissed off, because you were telling me truths, and I didn't want to hear the truth. No. Yeah. But that's the only way to heal. And then the weirdest thing happened. So you invite me to, look, I'm running a group therapy session for cops. Why would you do that to yourself? Yeah. Because we tortured the shit out of you. <laughs> because just, people just with... sign-in sheet alone. <laughs> the only people... Who understand post-traumatic stress is somebody else who has it. They really understand when you're, you're, you're screaming at your wife, you're yelling at the kids, uh, you, you kind of pull yourself away, you distance yourself from, from other people, from your wife. Breaking uh, toy guns. Breaking toy guns. Uh, yeah, I mean, really. So <laughs> You know, that's one of my least proud moments of my life. So the story goes, and you know the story very well, is my son, after my shooting, my son points a toy gun at me because he had a Nerf gun. And he looks at me in the eye and he's playing. And I take the gun out of his hands. I snap it in two. I throw it in the garbage. And he's looking at me with that mouth open look that only a kid can give you when they're totally frightened and totally scared. And then I walked out of the house and nobody saw me for a couple of days. 
And that was my moment at home. Were knowing you drinking? That, uh, it's hard to tell if I was drinking at that time. I think I was. I think I was because it took the edge off. It, uh, but we, you invite me to this group therapy session and I'm like, ah, I don't want to go talk to, you know, I'm thinking it's the group therapy session from the other guys. You know, what would it feel like to, to shoot that guy? It felt like a dick with eyes, you know, it wasn't, I, I didn't want to do it. Like I really didn't want to do it, but I acquiesced and I, I came in and, um, is it a desk pop? Is it a desk pop? <laughs> so I come in and there's a bunch of guys around there and some of the guys were further along than me. You mm-hmm. had like uh Jose Brito and Jose Irizarry and I'm sorry to say their names, but those, those are the people that really helped me along early on. And I came in with Andy and Chris and Pete was there and Todd was there. And I remember all these guys and um, you gave me the opportunity. You said, okay, Kevin, tell, why don't you tell everybody what happened? I remember talking about it, but it was easier to talk about it, but it was still very difficult. Mm-hmm. Tell me what happened. Cause I thought I was a big giant pussy for not being able to take this stuff. I wasn't shot. Right. How, why, why is this happening? I, I didn't understand it. But then when you start hearing the other guys talk, is they're in the same position you are. Exactly. And I remember Jose Irizarry telling me, yeah, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, and this. And I didn't believe him. And sure enough, this happened, and this happened, and this happened. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a great picture. So that was one of the few places I used to look forward to going. We had it once a week. And I think one time there was some, you had asked us to go down to Rutgers for some for cop to cop. And we thought we were going to go down there and talk to the group, Well, there was like five people there and we just sat there. And so afterwards we all went out to some restaurant and there was a group of us. And and I think I showed you the picture before. So Drew, show that picture. That's the original group, the one that I sent you earlier. And we're sitting around a bar and I remember there that was the first time that I was able to go out in a restaurant and I was with all these guys who were in similar situations as me. And we all were like, we were back to normal for a brief moment. And, and that's when I really, really started feeling the power of what a group therapy situation is. And when you're around like-minded people and people that went through what you went through, that, that was, that was when I really started to turn a corner. Yeah. You had to, you had to come around, uh, and, and, and talk to people who understood. So you, again, you got tortured. In that in that group therapy session, yeah, I didn't think so. Because <laughs> Doc would just sit there and just go, "Oh God!" from from the sign in sheet to the, to the end, just go, "Oh my God, what the fuck is wrong with you?" Who used to sign in Mahatma pants, <laughs> <laughs> Oliver clothes off. I eat my drawers. You were good at that. I didn't do it. I didn't do it all the time. Okay, let me make that very clear. Full transparency. There's sometimes I might have done it. I'm not going to fully admit to it. There's some I was, things I, was I can't a, talk about. See, I was in on a couple. What I do is like if I sign my name first, I'd go like five lines down and I'd put a name down so everybody else had to sign it. And every single time, Doc would look at me and go, come on. <laughs> it wasn't me. It wasn't me. So the cool thing about therapy is, um, you know, one day I see this guy come in. And I was like, and I, I wasn't sure if I recognized him right. Now, I think you were the only one sitting on the couch at that point. The backstory between Mike and I is I used to work with Mike's brother. So I had seen Mike. I met Mike, uh, you know, at this point, this is 2014. So I had worked with Mike's brother 15 years ago. You worked in Rosalia? No, no. no his brother, no. I sold cars before I was a kid. Oh. And I worked with his brother a long time ago, 90, 98, somewhere around there. 
And um, I knew you had a little used car salesman. <laughs> <laughs> I can Still sl- does. I can sling some bullshit. That's why. <laughs> and so I knew Mike and I see Mike walking in. I'm like, Mike, you know, it's 15 years since I seen him. Mike, why are you here? And he's, ah, I was in that shooting in Lyndhurst. And, you know, so I gave him my number because I did, I did to him what the, those older guys did to me. Here's my number. Call me. Let's talk. And they would come call and check in on me. And I never forgot that. And as I, because at this point I was retired, I was just staying in group because I liked it. And I felt my need to pay it forward and to, to return what was given to me. But so you, you left out a little portion of that story. I walk in, you're sitting on the couch. I walk over, I introduce myself. How you doing, Mike Felice Linners, please? You go, Kevin Donaldson, landscaper. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when you said, you go, Mike. Do you have a brother, Frank? I said, yeah. He goes, I knew I knew you. We used to work together. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I used to tell people I was a landscaper because I was too young to do my full 25 and I wanted to avoid the follow-up question if I said I was a retired cop. I'm sitting there thinking, who the fuck is a landscaper doing here? You know, I thought I was going to be talking to all cops. <laughs> I, I felt more comfortable. Like that was an environment. In all honesty, that, that, that environment was a comfortable environment. Is that what you tried to create there or is it just happened organically? No, that's, I tried to create that. There were other people who wanted to get into that group, but they were not appropriate. Oh, we were. Yeah. We were appropriate? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, everybody everybody had the same disability. Um, most of them were involved with some type of shooting. Uh, even the females. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it, it was, it was, it was, a, it was really, a, actually, it was probably the best group I've ever had. That was a lot of, of fun. People. And we used to we we became very close to this day, as, as you know we talk about the group text on here a bit every day okay every day <laughs> we just, we there just got are, one before there are things on there okay yeah we just got one before we went on air and, and uh, I was sitting there looking at the, the text messages and my wife said any other of those uh, really risque ones that they put in there so but uh, see as you, that's the the dark cop humor. Yeah. You know, that, that's well, how we get through days. And, right. and with people who you feel normal around, mm-hmm. you can you can joke like that again. Um, you know, we've had some successes and we've had some failures in that group. Um, the thing that got me that I didn't like about group was there are certain people that didn't. And this is my own fault, because I think that you should always give back tenfold. Mm-hmm. And there are certain people that didn't do that. Certain people that left group. And I, I, there, I won't mention his name, but I, we, we're getting a cr- crop of new guys in. Mm-hmm. Mike was there at the time. We're getting a crop of new guys in. And I called the older guys. I said, look, can you just come? And I think one of them actually came on Zoom. Yeah. Guy yeah. from Georgia. Yeah. Andy. Yeah, oh, that was Andy Harmel. Yeah. yeah. Well, we used to put him on the iPad. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So there, there, there was a lot of people who did do it, but there was a couple guys who just didn't do it. And I got really mad at them. I was like, you, you son of a bitch. You took, 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 and now it's your chance. And it was my one favor. And I remember that guy, he came to me afterwards, and he said, oh, I heard you're mad at me for that. And I said, yeah, I, I am mad at you for that. And he goes, well, you know, ask me any other favor. And I took, you know, I took the Godfather line is I don't ask you for a second favor when the first one's refused. Right. And I, I'll never forget that. And to this, like, I, I have no use for somebody like that. I need people in my life that are willing to take but then give back, not to me. I don't want it back. Right. Give it back to somebody else. I know Mike has done that. Mike took that and ran with it. I believe in that. And I know a lot of other people in there believe in that. 
but we we still keep in touch with these guys. That's how that's how powerful that group was. Yeah, they, they, yeah. It's just, some of them still call. They'll yeah. call me every once in a while. Yeah, everybody needs a tune up every once in a while. Yeah, <laughs> everybody needs a tune up. Yeah, you know, it was just <clears throat> like I said. It was so special to be around such like minded people where you can actually feel comfortable telling your feelings. Well, you know, too. We used to go to Rutz Hut. Inside, yeah. we'd sit around. Uh, Sometimes we sat outside. Yeah. We used to bring our chairs. <laughs> well, we should do that again. We I talked about that. I was trying to get a night in my office when my the people that are working in there aren't working so that we could do that. Well, don't you have some hookups to get these people out? Just, you know, some of these guys maybe say, hey, look. Anything you need. <laughs> get out. It's closed. That's just some way I go in and get out closed. <clears throat> uh, but I remember some nights going into group and people are sitting there and Andy. Okay. So I remember <laughs> Andy coming in and you can see it on his face that he had a bad week. <laughs> and he's like, he just like, he couldn't even talk. He's like, I don't know. But you, you, it's more than just group. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you helped us through the whole retirement process. Mm-hmm. Uh, you helped us get along. And deal with and navigate those muddy waters because those that's a that's a whole other stress. Yeah. So not only are you dealing with the stress from the incident, you now you're dealing with the stress from retirement. Because I don't think anybody in our group ever went back. No. Yeah. No. And, no. Not that I. None that's nobody none that was in our I, nobody group. I know. No. no. And then uh, you, I had one officer that went back. After. Oh, um, from Passaic. Um, his name was Andy too. He's from Passaic. He went back. His dad was a, a higher-ranking guy. Yeah. Um, he worked with Irizarry and Hormel, and he did actually go back. That's the only one I think I've ever saw go back. I had somebody from uh, Asbury Park that uh, retired out, actually, and then he uh, he went back. How did that work out for him? He, the lieutenant. No kidding. He was, <laughs> he was a patrolman. At the time, and he made sergeant and then went up. So if, if you, you've seen so many cops over your life, you see some people get post-traumatic stress worse than others. Like you get, this, cops mm-hmm. go back. What's, do you have your finger on the pulse of why this is happening? Well, there are triggers. There are triggers out in our lives that will they'll, they'll trigger, trigger a response from you. Yeah, it's all up here. Yeah. So you're saying I'm fucked up? Well, no. I Wouldn't be the first time you said that. I'm going to say that all injuries are, uh, you know, they're not. All injuries are not visible. No. I.e. PTSD. Yeah. I have a t-shirt. I wear that. So there's a there's an interesting person I recently got in contact with. Her name is Stephanie Samuels. She worked. I, I know Stephanie. Okay. So she kind of. So I spoke with her. She got she uh, Mike De Palma set me up with her, and Mike's come and seen you and good friend of the show. And he sets me up with her and she started talking to me and she works in that CT Institute and she's doing amazing studies on police and post You're dropping names. Am I? Just like my father. I don't, I don't <laughs> mention names, but anyway, Go ahead. um, so I got on the phone with her cause she's coming in in a couple weeks and she started reeling off her, her findings on her studies with uh, post-traumatic stress and traumatic brain injuries and, and the correlation. But she started reeling off how I was raised. And she said, let me guess, you grew up in a bad household. You, probably, you played contact sports. 
Um, you feel this overwhelming need to, I mean, boom, boom. She like five things and she never met me. She never talked to me. Mm -hmm. And I said, did Mike, I asked her, I said, did Mike talk to you about me? And she goes, no, I just, that's what I'm finding. That's the correlation. So she's doing some stuff because if, if she's doing some research. Yeah. And it's wonderful research. Yeah. And it's positive research. Yeah. Good stuff. Because ultimately we want to try to beat this thing. You know, like I, I beat anorexia. Yeah. So I got that going for me. How old was she when you beat her up? <laughs> that's a name we could have put down. Anorexia. Anorexia. Yeah, that's a good one. next next group. Next time. No, you you so if we do if we do get together for a group. Oh, we're again, gonna do that. I, because it's very powerful and it, it it's not something that just put two lists together. One for the fake names, one for the real names. <laughs> no. I actually I, I enjoy doing that. Uh, there's good actor interaction, and and you can talk to each other. You have issues got going on at home with your family because of your PTSD. You're relating to other people who are experiencing the same thing. It's not like you're a loner and that this is, uh, you know, you're 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 dealing with this by yourself. There's, there, that's help. You know, we we talk about it all the time. When you're going through that dark dark tunnel and you think you're all by yourself, like I said, I felt like I was the only one that was ever involved in something like that. Mm -hmm. I knew there was other people, but you feel like you're the only one. When you're going through that dark tunnel, it's so dark, you don't know that there's someone standing right next to you, walking right along with you. Right. Well, that's true. And then there comes a time, and one of the hardest decisions I ever made is I felt like I had to separate myself from the group. And I think I was doing it for three or four years. And at one point, I just, I got I to gotta walk away from this. I don't know why. Um, so there was no reason? The, there, there was no reason really for it. I just felt like I had to separate myself for whatever reason. And I don't know to this day, I can't tell you why I separated myself from, the, and I even took myself off the group text for a while. Um, I, I, I don't know whether I was regressing. Were you having issues at home? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> don't we all? Yeah. Well, yeah, but no, you, you know, I mean, they were, they were powerful enough. Um, to turn you away from something that was a positive in your life where I guess home wasn't as positive other than your children. No, no. Even with my children, the, the relationship was strained. Thankfully, they were young enough where hopefully I didn't damage them too much because that was my always my big fear, like I'm going to damage them. Mm -hmm. Well, see, see, that's what group was for me too. It was, just, it was like a break from reality. You know, it was getting out of that, that shitty situation you're in, you know, and getting up there where you could just be calm and be yourself. And you could talk you know, about it. And talk about it in front of people who know. Right. Non-judgmental. Yeah. Right. Like I said, you, you know, being type A personality cop and all that, you know, you think you're Joe Macho and everything. You can't talk to like one of the cops from your department about how you're feeling. Right. Because first of all, they don't feel that way. So they have no idea what you're talking about. And second of all, if you were thinking about going back to work, now you're that dented individual that, and. Stay away from him. He's yeah. got, I was called all sorts of names. Yeah. From my department. I really was. Especially back to Chief. Oh, yeah. He was. <clears throat> oh. That's before he retired, though. <laughs> there's a. Uh, they still don't have a chief. Yeah, I heard. They, there's a special place in, in hell for people who spoke poorly about what I was going through. And I know. So there was not my department. Um, there was a, there was one guy who uh, spoke poorly about me. And a couple years later, his brother got involved in a critical incident and tried to retire but it was like you know you show up at a car that's burning and somebody's burning inside horrible incident horrible incident but once they found out that they weren't going to get the full 
the full pension because of the incident, they pulled the papers out, you know, and, and I'm sitting back and I didn't say anything. I didn't speak up, but I did in the back of my mind going a little different now, isn't it? Yeah. A little different now, you know, now that, now that the shoe's on the other foot. You know, I, I always used to say that too, before, before my incident, if people got in critical incidents and they retired, I'd say like, come on, really? You know, cause I didn't understand it. Right. You know, I, I, I cast judgment on them. You know, and then once I went through it, I was like, oh, now I see. Like what we talked about in Instagram lives, there's three sides to every story, (laughs) your side, their side and the truth. And they're rarely, they're rarely the same. But um, why do you think that other cops will not, it's not that they disagree. It's just, they think you're scamming. Cause I, cause I, I ran into this as, as I stayed in group and I was trying to help guys get through, navigate the, the pension system in the retirement process. I had a lot of guys call me up and say, Hey, I'm thinking about retiring. What do I say? Why would you say the fucking yeah, truth? Exactly. And I knew they were full of shit as soon as they said that. Right. Because out of the group, all the group members that I've gone through with, not one of them wanted to retire. No. no, well, that's a big problem with police officers when they're involved in things like that. You know, you want to make the decision based upon yourself and what you feel uh, when you retire. You don't want to be forced to retire because, you know, that's not what you want to do then. Uh, so that's a, that's a problem, too. Mm. You know, you want to go out on your own terms. You don't want to have to go out because you, you did your job. Well, now they got the resiliency program, which well, is, is a good flood. It's a good theory, a good st- the mind, the reason for putting it in was good. Here's my here's my holes with it. It's an appointed position with inside the police department. The chief is not going to point anybody appoint anybody that he disagrees good, with. Good old boys. Yeah. yeah. And now, am I really going to? If I'm not on the A team, am I really going to spill my guts to somebody who I know is is a mouthpiece of the chief? Of course not. Especially like in my department. You knew my department very well. Yeah. I, I would never. I would never. So that's the flaw in that system. Um. Although I do believe it was started with the right intentions. I think it was, but you know, it was, it was a bone that was stangled in front of the PBA because the uh, governor and uh, AG had said all these positive things they were going to do for us and they did nothing. No. So they, they threw this bone to us, the resiliency officer who was one of the good old boys. I'll give you an example of what happened. Uh, an officer called me one day and he said, Doc, uh, my chief, I was talking to one of my guys who was telling me, you know, what he needed, what he felt he, he, he you know, he needed help with. And uh, when I was done, the chief signaled me over and said, what were you talking to him about? And he said, well, it's, it's none of your business. Uh, you know, this is, it's, it's, it's HIPAA stuff. You can't, you know, I don't need to tell you. And he said, well, I'd like to be suspended. So I, I said to him, listen, no problem. I'm going to have somebody call you. I'm going to call you. I had Mark Kovar call him. And Mark Kovar ripped him a new one. And uh, that stopped. And the guy didn't get suspended. Mark's good to get. Mark's a good guy. Yeah, he is. I, I miss Mark. One of know. the best tans I've ever seen on a human being. I've, uh... <laughs> <laughs> we went to that Trump golf outing for Police Survivors Fund. And I go, damn, Mark, you're you're you are freaking tan. And he goes, fake and bake, bro. When did you did? Oh, I you yeah. yeah. Oh, I used to do those. Things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, we talked about. I don't about, get them anymore. I was gonna say we talked about that the other day. How come you know, did we fall out of grace with you? We don't go anymore. 
It was you. I fell out of grace. I actually have that picture somewhere. It's you, me, Joe Iubi, and I forget who our, our fourth. Oh, uh, uh, Corey Green. Corey big, Green, big dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was, oh yeah, yeah. We had we had a good time. Yeah. We really did have a good time. But oddly enough, so thera- I, I pulled up the Trunk National in my Jeep. Yeah, the guy opens a passenger seat to get the clubs out. I said, no, 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 no. <laughs> I remember going in the locker room and saying. What asshole has two lockers? Oh, Donald Trump. Did <laughs> you ever use that, that uh, club I gave you? Yes, I did. Yes, I, well, I haven't played golf in about probably three. since Trump National. No. I don't. I have. I don't think I've played since Trump. No, that's not true. I have. I have. No, I. I had neck surgery, and I just don't. I don't want to play with Joe Iubi again. He's too good. Yeah, he's good. He's he's, 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 he's stepped down from being able to. I think get on that junior pro second. Yeah. Oh, he's but, he's one step he's down. Good. He's, he's a good golfer. Yes, he is. Yes, he you is. You know who is another good golfer? It's Joey Gonzalez. Joe Gonzalez. I'm not a golf guy, but Joe Gonzalez. You know he yeah, he's, he was after you. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I don't think I know Joe Gonzalez. Um, see, when you left, when you left group, I became like the senior person there. <laughs> you know, like, I need Kevin true. back. You know, if it came back around, I I would like to speak to people, but I don't know what kind of value I would have in group anymore. Why not? I'm ten years gone. So what? But you're still the same miserable person. I, I am. I am. I have a lot more tools. So this is what I tell people. I still go through the same troubles I, I did back then. Right. But I have more tools in order to rely on to get me through. It's a familiar situation mm-hmm. now where where after my shooting, everything was chaos. Everything was very unfamiliar. Now I, I know, OK, I've been here before. I can deal with this. Um, but I do have my moments. It's not chaos anymore. It's just chaotic. Yeah. So when group therapy, obviously the lockdown happened and we could no longer have group and there was, there wasn't even a possibility even if for a tune up and I don't do well with the zoom therapy. I know that's the way, the way of the world now, but I don't do well with that. Mm-hmm. I need to be in the same room with somebody. Um, and I, st- <laughs> I've done so many crazy things in the <laughs> 10 years that I've been out of the police department because I just try, I got to keep my mind occupied. So I start this show. And, and I, when I'm trying to figure out the concept of this show, it, it was just, and I did the first episode and I'm like, oh, okay, I understand. This is, this is us just sitting there going and talking it out. And when it really hit home is episode nine when he came in. And I remember sending you that episode going, yeah, you might want to, mm-hmm. you might want to listen to this. Cause it was pretty interesting. What'd you think about that? When, I, thought, when, I thought it was good. Well, when, when I, like, my, of my crazy ideas, yeah. you know, what, like, this guy's out of Some of them are a little far-fetched. <laughs> my, my shows? Well, no, I, you know, <laughs> I'm being polite. <laughs> so, well, so, so some I'm of the, polite a lot. Some of the stories we tell are, are, uh, are some of the stories in here. Are, yeah, 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 well, yeah, I listen to a few of them. Well, I, I, I want your honest opinion because, believe it or not, your opinion really matters to uh, me. Some, well, don't most, mention anything specific, but no. yeah, most of them are good. Yeah, really, most of them. Most. <laughs> so, audience out there, listen to most of our shows. <laughs> <laughs> but that is the genesis of this show, right? <clears throat> what the feeling that we were able to bring each other in group therapy because of what you facilitated in mm-hmm. that room in Verona, New Jersey is how this has grown to what it is today. And listen, we're we're still growing every single day, but you know, it went from my basement to Pompton Plains to here we are, and we've got a chance to talk to some amazing professionals. I'm I'm I'm, I'm quite proud 
that you guys did this and that uh you know because that was that was all part of the group it, 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 kevin you know? always says it is this is an extension of group therapy so uh <laughs> I, th- I think that uh you know it's, been, it's it served a really positive purpose and it, and it supported law enforcement and it also showed what goes through a, a cop's mind when they end up in this serious critical incident Boy, I'd like to be a fly on your wall when you're talking to somebody. Because I know I've heard things back in from people who have gone to see you. Oh, yeah, Doc was talking about you. (laughs) I want to be a – because it's probably a conversation like this. These fucking guys, you're never going to believe what the fuck they did. (laughs) Something like that. Close enough. I could picture somebody walking in, like, being in a critical incident or something. Guys, like, Doc, I'm all fucked up. Don't think you're that fucked up. You got to meet this Kevin Donaldson. <laughs> he was fucked up. <laughs> were we? Were we? Uh, I don't uh, use names. Yeah. Well, you can use my name. I use yours enough. That's I, all right. Um, were we? We have to be some of the most fucked up individuals you've had in your office. No, no. <laughs> that's that's bad. You were all you were all involved in a critical incident that was life threatening. You had a bullet go through your fucking head. Over the top, you have, you felt the heat. I remember that. Yeah, because I saw you when you after that shooting. Uh, I mean, think about all these things. You shot somebody. Somebody else. Everybody had had a critical incident there, which which is is that's that's for your life. That's life. It's life lasting. Not going away. You're not going to think about it every day, but once in a while, you might have a trigger. It's like, oh my god. You, you, you know what happens. You know, me and Kevin talk about it all the time. You know, one of the big triggers is the anniversary every year. Yeah, definitely. Like the week leading up and even into the week after it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's why I go up. My, my shooting happened at 227 in the morning. I go up to the scene that day at 227 every every year. Really? Every do you, year. Do, I you just, find, do you find it uh, therapeutic? I don't know. <laughs> I really, you know, it, it, the anxiety going up there is just crazy, but I feel compelled to go up there. I mean, it, it's totally different now, you know, because they did construction and everything. It's totally different, but... I just feel like compelled to be there. I don't know if you remember. Maybe it depends. Uh, usually, I, I, I have you know my my cop go back to the scene just to go there. Yeah. So uh, yeah, you're going to hear this one from this is this is something new. I have never gone. I've driven close mm-hmm. trying to get back to that scene. I was never able to drive past the house mm-hmm. ever. Um, last year, I'm in the car with my son. I'm not doing well. All right, I'm, I'm having a bad day, but my son in the car is sort of keeping me level. I just, I'm driving for whatever reason. I drive back to the scene. And my son knows enough. He knows I was in a shooting. He knows enough. He doesn't know the full extent of what I went through, but he knows enough. And the way, it's a townhouse complex, so I pulled in the back. There's a side parking lot, and you can see the deck of where it happened. And I show him. And I take a picture, and I say, you see the deck right there? And he goes, wow, that's really small. And I was like, yeah, it was it was up close and personal. And I remember just staring at it. Where was staring. that glass? Where was that piece of glass? It was a sliding glass door. Oh. A sliding glass door that we threw a chair through. And my son, I, I looked at my son because I wanted to see his reaction on it. And I think that day, he he looked at me, and he didn't say a whole lot. Um, but I think it... it it affected him a little bit saying that's, that's where definitely that's where all this stuff happened. But that's the first time I'd ever been back. And that was a year ago. Mm-hmm. So it took me nine years to get back to that spot. So I got to give you a lot of credit for being able to go back. I, I, 
I was not comfortable. I wanted to get out. I don't even know if the woman still lives there who lived there before. Um, Do you have any of your uniforms? I have two. You saved them? I have two of my uniforms. Um, unfortunately, the dickheads of my department took threw- your patches. They, they took your patches? The, well, yeah. They tried to say, I, they tried to tell me, uh, this is how bad my place was. They I, didn't, they I did not like that. Me. They, they, I wanted what was in my locker and there were uniforms and they said, okay, well, um, you got to turn the patches in. I'm like, I'm fucking, I, I'm, I remember I'm that. not going to fucking turn the patches in. I said, tell me one person in the history of the Roseland police department that has turned their patches in. Nobody. Um, the uniform of that night, the shooting uniform, they threw it away. And that's one I, I think I would have wanted to have. Maybe I, I don't know if you wanted that. You, you want to hear this? I didn't have a control over it. I think that's what hurt me the most. The story of my uniform. You know, they stripped us at the scene that night. Put us in civilian clothes in a command post. They take all. They take your gun, your belt, your everything. Stripped us right down. They put it in a paper bag, <clears throat> and off it went. You know, because we had um, the, the, the tire. tire shrapnel all over us and everything else. So I kept calling my chief, chief, when's my uniform coming back? When's my uniform coming back? And I lived right down the street from headquarters. Chief calls me up one day and says, Mike, your uniform's back. You can come get it. I ran down the street, picked up my uniform in the same brown paper bag. I ran home. I took it out. I looked at it, put it in the bag, threw it all in the garbage. Really? Didn't want it anymore. I don't have a uniform. I threw everything. I either gave it away or threw it away. Well, yeah. I kept I kept two for a reason. And I put them in a box, and they're stacked away along. So I, I kept two of everything except my leather jacket, which uh, obviously I only have one of. So when I pass, I want my children to each have one. I got two kids. They can each, they can split. And I just, that's what I used to do. But there's a piece of me, and I know there's a piece of you that will always be that, that police officer who really loved that job. Yeah. And I, that's what I miss. I miss that purpose of that job. But we have this, and this is kind of gives us purpose filling now. that void. Yeah, yeah. You like you know you were a cop because you liked being a cop. You loved what you did. Yeah. Um, and that's critical. And that's been the answer for most officers that I asked that question. I said, "Why are you a cop?" I said, "I really like. I love. I love being a cop. I like helping people." Yeah. Except no. I didn't like shooting deer. Unlike you, that's where you and I differed. You but know, I did it, like the meat. It it took me about four years. To put a Linhurst police shirt on. Wow. I had to swat sweat, you know, hooded sweatshirts and everything. They were all in my closet. It took me about four years to put one of those wow. on and be seen out in public. Yeah, it's, it's, it was, it was, at a, it was at a special Olympics event that I wore. It just seems such a, f so far away. It really does. It seems like a whole other lifetime ago. Isn't it better that way? I think it is. Yeah, I think it is. I think so. So, Doc, look, we're coming to the end of this thing. Okay. And I always try to end every show the same way. You've watched suffering that most people can't even fathom. But it's got to, it's, it's had to have taught you something. What do you think the suffering of being a, a cop doc has taught you? I think I've become more involved uh, in, uh, in people. I think I've become, I've become closer to people. You know, we're, we're not, and I, I've, I've shared things about my own life. You know, it's, you know, in my business, you're not supposed to do that. I'm not dealing with regular people. I'm dealing with cops. They're a different breed. They are. They know, you know, they, they'll ask me a question. Uh, I'll give you a, a, they'll ask me questions about anything. I don't, I don't have problems with, 
uh, unless they're really in depth and I shouldn't talk about them. But yeah, I don't mind sharing that. I think then that makes you and I closer. I was going to say that's an admirable thing because we're bearing our souls to you. Yeah. You're not, tech, not necessarily bearing your souls, but you're no. letting us into your soul. Absolutely. Like you said, before you got here, me and Kevin knew that you born and raised in the streets of Newark. We knew, the, you know, the type of people you hung out with. We knew you were at Woodstock. <laughs> the other doctors we went to, I couldn't even tell you what kind of car they drove. <laughs> nor, did, nor was I interested <clears throat> no, to find exactly. out. There was no connection at all. But, yeah. So it just, it just. It makes it much more personal. I think it needs to be personal because it is it's, it is personal. It's very intrusive, the things that are talked about. You know what I compare it to? I compare it to a woman finding a gynecologist. She's not just going to go to anybody. She needs to be comfortable with that person. 50% of your success in getting treated uh, is, is important because 50% of the connection that you make is going to contribute to your getting better. Well, if you're if you have any female patients that are looking for a gynecologist, I am an amateur gynecologist. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm only joking around. But hey, doctor, the one thing you said before that that was so true though, when you started working with cops, you don't have to wear a suit and tie and you can say fuck again. Right. That's what makes it so important because it's gotta be a comfort level. When you go to these other doctors, and I'm sure you they're in a suit and tie, it's all stuffy and you they just, didn't grow up on a street corner you, in Newark. Yeah, you're just sitting there like different. You're rigid. When when people come to you, it's just a very relaxed atmosphere because you're like one of us. You're dressed. Me and Kevin, when we when we came up here on to to this studio, we were talking about like what we were going to wear. I said, Kev, we're everyday people. I'm yeah. not going to come in in a suit and tie, and you know, uh, I'm going to give you a window into the difference between you, Doctor Stefanelli, and other doctors. So when you had forced me to go to rehab, which I was resistant on. <laughs> Thank you for that. That was awesome when I had to spread my ass cheeks in there and make sure I wasn't smuggling anything in there. It was really wonderful. The guy was very gentle. Um, had long fingers, though. <laughs> yeah, very thick hands. I was in rehab for a very short time because it sobered me up very, very quickly. I got out, and I was supposed to go see my workers' comp doctor. I wasn't allowed to have a cell phone in there. Dr. C? Yep. Mm -hmm. I wasn't allowed to... I wasn't allowed to to have my cell phone in there, but I would ch they were allowed you to check it every day. No call. I called him when I was going down there and say, hey, I'm going to miss my appointment this week. I'm going to rehab. I'm checking myself in. When I got out, he was the first person I called to say, hey, look, I'm out. Let's schedule something up. Because I knew my, my obligations with workers' comp. He says to me, I can no longer see you anymore because you're, you're obviously not listening to me. Meanwhile, you're trying to save my life. He's worried about me not taking his advice. Right. Yeah. That was that was well that was him. And so that that in a nutshell is Dr. Eugene Stefanelli and and I am grateful that I know you. You've been a, a, a really a north star in my life for the past 10 years. Um you're somebody I can joke with, you're somebody I can really bear my soul to. I've cried in front of you, I've laughed in front of you, I've I've had a range of emotions and I don't think you realize how important you are to not only me but to uh, many, 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 many officers. That makes me feel very good. I, I enjoy. I really, that makes me feel. That makes me know that I did my job. But I do like your wife better than you because she's Irish. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> what are you gonna do? My mother-in-law comes from uh, Ireland. <laughs> Doc, I've said it to you plenty of times. I was never suicidal during this thing. I'm too much of a pussy to kill myself. But a lot of a lot of nights, I went to bed, That's and I thought. said, if I don't wake up tomorrow morning, it probably wouldn't be such a bad thing. 
you're the one that got me through this and I can't thank you enough. Like Kevin said, you're, you're, you're a mentor. You're, you're more importantly, you're a friend. Yeah. I consider you fellas, my friends, that whole group. I even, every once in a while that some of those guys were from Newark. Oh yeah. They, really? Yeah. They call me and they say, come on, let's come down to Newark. Uh, you know, let's go to dinner and bring your gun. <laughs> <laughs> but you know that, uh, I can't carry over now over 72. You can't carry. Really? Yeah. Leave it in the car. <laughs> I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming in, doc. It was my pleasure. I, enjoy, awesome. I enjoyed it. I do. Awesome. I, this is like having group again. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's all good. Uh, did you bring your checkbook? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We're going to, well, we'll bill it right to insurance. That's going to do it for this episode of the Suffering Podcast, The Suffering of Cop Doc with Dr. Eugene Stefanelli, part two. And let's think about all the stuff that we learned. The right doctor is vital for police. Like minded people understand each other. Be understanding because there's always three sides. But most importantly, Dr. Stefanelli saved our lives. And the Suffering Podcast is all because of him. That's going to do it for this episode of the Suffering Podcast. Don't forget to go to popple.com for a digital business card. Put in the code TSP20 for a 20% discount. Follow us on all social media. That's Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, OnlyFans. And follow Mike at Mike underscore Follow me at Real Kevin Donaldson. And, of course, follow the Suffering Podcast. We'll see you next week. <laughs>